Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called super stocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. Welcome everyone to our podcast series. So if you love our podcast, please follow or subscribe to our podcast. Our guest today is my dear friend Calvin So, who is also a business analyst. So earlier in 2021, we visited several listed companies such as Par Technology, Galaxy Gaming, Kima Care. And in our conversation, we chatted about his process towards compounding his wealth steadily. So please enjoy this conversation with Kelvin. So welcome to the podcast, Kelvin. It's quite amazing how our friendship have blossomed over our common love for investing. Your story and my story are both very similar. Both of us started out investing very early. So tell us a bit about yourself. You know, how do you got into investing at such an early age? What's your motivation to learn investing and how has your life been changed by investing? Hi guys, first of all, I just have a keen uh, interest in business at a very young age. So I still remember after I graduated uh, O-Levels in Singapore, I went to a polytechnic and my first choice all the way to my last choice, I did my best to select all the business related diplomas because I was very sure I want to graduate as a business student and ultimately, you know, go into business. So it's just something that I, I liked since I was young. But why did I have that, you know, fascination for businesses? Because I realized that people who are running businesses generally are wealthier, they can afford uh, finer things in life. And, you know, from young, that just caught my uh, curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, when is the point you realize that, hey, you know, uh, this is a time where I, I want to invest and subsequently, what were the struggles like in the earlier days? Yeah, so um, a story about myself, well, when I was very young, I actually got recruited into a network marketing uh, sales company and I was dabbling in a lot of alternative uh, investments. So uh, at a young age, I already had that. I already started to pursue that interest and wanted to learn more about investing. That's why I joined a network marketing company that was more on the investment side. But you know, to cut a long story short, things eventually did not turn out well you know, because some of the projects did not take off, the business uh, didn't succeed. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, investors who, you know, couldn't uh, get their money back. And that was where one of the lowest moments in my life when I realized that, hey, you know, what I've been working on for the last couple of years did not eventually work out. And then I told myself, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to learn about investing and really understand how it works. And that was where I stumbled upon Warren Buffett's biography. So I highly recommend you to read this book written by a journalist called Alice Schroeder. And the book is uh, called The Snowball. It talks about Warren Buffett's uh, life and business. And from there, I just devoured the book, you know, in like three days. And I wanted to learn as much as I can about this old man, you know, from USA, Omaha. And then that's how my investment journey started off. 
Yeah. So when you first started out, you know, I think there's several investment styles. For example, deep value investing. We have uh, turnarounds. We have growth investing. Um, so could you share a little bit about uh, how you started investing? What are the strategies you use? And maybe uh, has that worked out for you? If, if, if it didn't, what were the shortcomings? And uh, what is the current strategy that you're using right now to invest? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, we, we call ourselves uh, value investors. Yep. So when we started, because we all try to model after what Warren Buffett has done over his course of career. And for those of you who, who study Buffett, you would know that he started this uh, investment strategy called value investing and he learned it from Benjamin Graham. It is about finding statistically very cheap companies uh, being related to the business book value and you try to buy it below uh, what it's worth. And then, you know, um, the stock market would, you know, reprice um, undervalued stocks, you know, in time to come. And that's how Warren Buffett carved out a very successful investment career. So naturally, when I just started, I wanted to emulate that strategy. And, you know, being in Singapore, I wanted to start off with investing in Singapore companies. And that was where, you know, we started looking at, you know, most of the Singapore companies that are listed on the SGX. But what we can find that are statistically cheap in Singapore are usually, you know, manufacturing companies or companies that have some problems in the business. That's why they are cheap. So that's how that whole, you know, asset play or turnaround uh, started off. And I mean, we did pretty well on some of the investments. Uh, like, you know, that time we were sharing about HiP International, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were doing some of the uh, parts for iPhone and we did pretty well, but there were some uh, investments in turnarounds that eventually didn't work out mm. because of tough economic conditions. I remember this company called Inotech, right? They were doing the TV bezels and if you think about it, the, the price of TVs are getting cheaper and cheaper as, you know, technology improve, um, technolo- uh, these TVs are depreciating. So if you're supplying TV bezels, components, it's going to be very hard to you know, maintain your revenue and maintain the kind of margins. And we see that the, the business headwinds are very strong for these manufacturing companies. They were having manufacturing, manufacturing bases in China and now China is getting expensive. They're going to Vietnam and then now from Vietnam, they're going to Myanmar. Mm-hmm. So it's always pursuing that kind of low quality growth about cost cutting and you know, trying to survive in tough economic conditions. So there's only so much uh, meat you can carve off the bone until you finally get to the bone and there's nothing left to, for you to carve. So, you know, eventually we all started looking at growth companies, uh, companies that are growing in, in secular trends, all right? And then that's how my investment journey has kind of progressed from looking at statistically cheap companies to, to more uh, growing companies that are better in quality, yeah. Hey, Calvin, I think it's interesting that you mentioned about, you know, all of us started out in Singapore, investing in Singapore is a company. So both of us are in Singapore. And I know that most of the Singaporeans invest in our local companies. However, I, I do know that right now your portfolio is mostly in American companies. So the returns between these two countries are actually worse apart, right? Yeah. Um, S&P 500 in US uh, returned about um, 80%, you know, uh, between 2015 to 2020, right? Five years, but eighty uh, percent returns. While uh, the Straits Times Index in Singapore only returned thirteen percent in the past five years, unfortunately, right? So, what do you think are some of the reasons that contributed to that? Is that the talent pool? Is it the culture? Is, is it the the place where we are located at? You know, what, what what are your thoughts around it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if you look at the STI, um, most of the companies that are listed and and included in STI are generally banks. We have our three local banks in mm. Singapore and a lot of other companies are related to the manufacturing industry. So 
you know, when you are investing in a manufacturing business, it's a very capital intensive business. You have factories, you have inventory, and you have very high working capital uh, requirements, all right? And with the economy, you know, being very cyclical in nature, we have boom and busts. It's going to be very tough for these companies to continuously compound shareholders' equity. Now, when you look at the S&P 500, you know, the companies that dominate that index are tech companies. Um, we have companies like, for example, Facebook that is really generating so much free cash flow from, you know, their advertising uh, a business. We have uh, companies like Apple, you know, they have such a high profit margin by selling, you know, iPhones. So the companies that are dominating the S&P 500 are, are more tech and software-based companies. And that's why they have returned, um, the stocks have done so much better for the American shareholders. But I think, I guess one good thing is that, you know, the American market is very open and very accessible to, to, to funds from all across the world. And so eventually we have been pursuing quality companies and it's not that we are biased towards America and we just prefer investing there, but just that in our pursuit of what we deem as quality companies, we just find ourselves end up investing in a lot of companies that are listed in America, American businesses, simply because, you know, they are really far better quality in terms of the product that they're selling, the margins that they're earning, and also the competitive uh, advantage that these companies that we invested possess. And that has driven very, very um, healthy and, and returns uh, for us. And we're very happy about that. So there's what a common question that we have from our podcast listeners, right? For example, if I'm in Singapore and I'm investing in Xinjiang or supermarket, I can see it, I can feel it. You know, I, I know whether they are doing well or not. So that is a form of assurance when we when they invest in Xinjiang, right? For example, but for us, we are investing in all these tech companies that's located in America. Um, did you find that was it tough for you to actually put most of your money in American companies? Do you think it's risky? What are your thoughts around it? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that it's an overnight thing that you know it's just suddenly overnight we just put all our money in the American market, but it's a gradual thing, a step-by-step process. Well, if you invest in, for example, a business like Xingxiong, um, you can see it, you can touch it. And yeah, Xingxiong is a very fabulous business. If you look at its return on capital, you look at its uh, uh, you know, low working capital requirement, it's a pretty remarkable company. They are a very successful local supermarket chain. And I think the founders have done a really good job coming from you know, the olden kampong days when they were uh, selling meat you know, in, in like a supermarket setting. But the question with you know, uh, investing in Xingxiong is what is the runway for growth ahead for the continuing and participating shareholders? If you think about it, Singapore has only about 5 million, 6 million population and our country is so small. The question is, can Xingxiong double up the number of supermarket chains that they have and how long can they continually grow and open up new supermarket chains in Singapore? So to me, that is um, a very limited upside. And also not forgetting that they have competition uh, coming in from you know NTUC from cold storage, and also you know online groceries like Redmart and even now Amazon is coming to to take a piece of the cake in Singapore. So in terms of uh, long term runway growth, is very limited for you know the, the participating and continuing shareholders of the company. That's really wonderful, Kelvin. So from what I hear from you, I think what you're saying is that the addressable market is actually very important. So. What you said also is quite refreshing because Charlie Munger said that the key to our performance in portfolio is knowing where the features are. So I'm always intrigued by how you source for investment ideas. And I know that you go really deep into your own research process as well. This includes going very deep into the company's 10K and 10Qs, meaning annual report, quarterly report as well. Uh, this might open a wormhole of range of topics, but please share with us, right? What is your research process? And do you have certain preference uh, 
of companies or industries and what kind of management do you like? Yeah, sure. So when it comes to looking for you know, investment ideas and investment opportunities in, in uh, all across the world, I find that you know, the easiest way to have access to information is actually reading the annual report. And the more I'm into this uh, line of investment work, I realize that not many people actually like reading annual reports. But for me, I feel that the kind of information that are in the annual reports are so uh, overwhelming that you can really learn so much about the companies, all right, uh, just by going through the annual report. So, you know, it's widely accessible to everybody. You can just download it from the investor relations website. And then, you know, when I'm reading the, the, the annual report, I'm looking for things that jump out at me, you know, things that intrigue me and want to, you know, make me probe even further. And I guess the reason why, you know, I'm able to do this is because I have studied uh, Warren Buffett's career very extensively and I'm very passionate about studying business models that have worked very well over the years. So, for example, uh, one of Warren Buffett's most famous investments was he invested in Coca-Cola, right, the soft drink company. And it's pretty, you know, um, smart of him to figure out that Coca-Cola has a high franchise value, you know, so many decades ago. And it's, it's not a recurring business, but it is a very repeating in nature. People, when they want something sweet uh, or sugary, they, they, they reach out for a can of Coke. And that is, you know, like a consumer habit that has a high consumer mind share. If you look at the numbers of Coca-Cola, they're really amazing. They have been paying dividends, have been growing the earnings very steadily over the years. So that is what we call a, a mentor model or a kind of framework that, you know, that's imprinted in our head. So we are trying to look for similar opportunities that fit that framework. And also, for example, we, we studied this company called you know, Amazon very extensively. It's a very big company. And this company is surprisingly, you know, they've been losing money for so many years. I mean, on a net profit level, you can see that they're making losses year after year. But what's amazing that Jeff Bezos has done is that he has built a remarkable consumer marketplace. Like now they're the largest in the US. And they're so dominant because of the kind of scale, the economies of scale that the business has generated. All right, they're able to you know, um, attract a lot of sellers to sell products on their platform and then they earn a fee. And from there, they build their own logistics network where they invested the money. So you know, over the years, they have gained that kind of competitive advantage that it's going to be very hard for another player to come in with the kind of capital to build their own logistics network and serve you know, the e-commerce uh, market. And these are what we call you know, network effects you know, flywheel effects and, and competitive advantages that the business has built up. So even though I don't own any shares in Coca-Cola or I don't own any shares in Amazon, I do understand why they are successful, the kind of characteristics that make them successful. And we are trying to find, you know, companies that are still small early in their, in their growth, but they already start to uh, portray such dominant characteristics within the business model. And another business that surprisingly was uh, uh, interesting to me was you know, Domino's, the company that, that sells a pizza. So always ask, like, when you look at Domino's, what do you think? People always say, oh, it's like a shop that, you know, leaves, it's like a hole in the wall, and then they just have a shop there. So if you think about that kind of description of Domino's, it's a very small pizza chain, and the cost of running it is so low. I think it costs about six hundred to $800,000 to set up a Domino's uh, a shop, and the break-even time is like less than a year, all right? And they embrace technology to deliver pizzas. So something like that, right? Like a business like as simple as selling pizzas has returned a hundredfold um, to its long-term investor. So to me, that is remarkable how they could have such high returns on capital and they were able to scale very quickly in, 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 in cities and deliver pizzas um, to people. And simple business, but 
something that is repeating, something that is you know easy to understand, and and is is such a successful investment for a shareholder. So we have been studying and collating you know uh, like a library of information on successful characteristics of these businesses. And when I'm reading an annual report of any company, I'm looking for such characteristics. I'm looking for competitive advantages. I'm looking for you know management that are opportunistic. They are investing in areas that you know they see that there's a huge return on capital. They are looking to serve a, a need that you know people are missing out on, a neglected market. And they are doing a really good job with you know customer service. They're doing a very good job with product innovation and they're embracing technology to reduce the cost. And I think these are companies that are going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. So along that line, we've been finding ideas and we've been investing. And I'm happy to say that you know, we have done pretty well so far. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting because uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, we come across a lot of brokerage reports as well. And a lot of it seems to be very focused on the financial aspects of it. Uh, but I guess from what I know of you, you do spend quite a bit of time analyzing to the management teams as well. And I think over time, you do have certain pattern recognition. But I guess like reading people is really quite subjective, right? It's not like one plus one equals to two. It could open up a range of interpretations. So for you, when you are looking at management teams, what are the things that you're actually looking at? And what is a good management team to you? Yeah, so for my experience, having looking at you know a few Singapore companies and attended a couple of AGMs in Singapore, I do find that you know Singapore companies, the management are a lot more conservative and they don't have that growth mindset uh, anymore. They're just looking to maybe survive in in the current economic conditions. But when I start listening into the earnings calls uh, of these American listed companies. I realize that the management are very much growth orientated, at least the ones that I'm, I'm interested in. They're talking about, you know, the addressable market that they have. They're talking about the plans to go after this market. How much money are they looking to invest in R&D, invest in sales and marketing to get the brand out there? And what kind of customers are they targeting? All right. And it's just heaven and earth, like worlds apart. And management characteristics are ultimately what drives the intrinsic value of the business. Because after all, when you're investing in a company, you're investing in people, right? And people matters a lot. So, you know, characteristics of management is, is absolutely important. Being growth-minded, they're pursuing new growth. They're not, you know, um, happy with the current status quo. They're here to be like a category crusher. They're here to, you know, um, transform their existing industry or even disrupt the old industry. And I like management like that. You know, they have a very grand vision. But other than having a grand vision, the unique economics have to make sense. They cannot be just blindly throwing money and, and after all, not turning a profit. So, you know, we study the profitability of the business. Is it on the path to profitability that's very important? The unique economics matters a lot to us as well. So we look out for all these facts. And most importantly, I'm looking for, you know, businesses that are simple to understand, in my opinion. So when I go through a company's balance sheet, it has to be easy enough to understand what's exactly on the balance sheet, what are the assets that they're holding, and, and, and how are they earning a, a, a respectable return on, on capital on that assets that's sitting on the books. So I remember, you know, early on in our investment community, a couple of us were looking at Wirecard. They had this, uh, you know, short little scandal and the price actually dipped for a moment of time. And, you know, some of my friends bought it and said, you know, it's a great company. The numbers are great. Um, uh, you know, investors have done so well with Wirecard. But when I looked through it, all right, and I was doing a tutorial and webinar on it, and when I looked through it, I realized that a lot of the numbers uh, don't make sense, even though the numbers look good. But you can tell something was a little bit off. I couldn't understand everything on the balance sheet. And I tell them, I tell you know the people around me that you know something's not right. And you know, the management is actually pledging their shares to the bank. So 
I think we should stay away from a company that we cannot understand. And then, you know, just fast forward a year and a half later, um, the stock is now, it went from a few hundred dollars to now 50 cents. And it's a huge uh, scandal that, that actually shaked up uh, all the uh, German investors. So, you know, simplicity is very underrated. People like to do, uh, you know, go for fancy investments. They, they, a lot of them are investing in things that they can't really understand. They buy it because people around them are buying it. But I think that's a very wrong uh, mentality. So management's integrity, you have to choose managements that are honest enough to make you know, the balance sheet simple enough for you to understand. Because if you read the annual reports in great detail and you find that it's confusing, it's often not your fault. It's the management's job of not doing you know, a proper job to explain things as simple as they can to, to shareholders. And oftentimes when I come across annual reports that are too complex to understand, I usually just skip and avoid them. So in summary, management must be growth-minded, right? They must pursue uh, new categories of growth. They must be innovative with, you know, embracing change, disruption, and technology. And most importantly, they must have integrity because ultimately you're entrusting them to allocate capital on your behalf. Yeah, so these are some of the quality checks that we do every time before we make an investment. And we've been very disciplined about it. We make sure it ticks all the boxes before we even invest. And that has worked very well for us uh, so far. Mm -hmm. So that's really uh, something very, very refreshing to hear as well. Um, and, I, and I like the part because sometimes investing could be really simple, but at times humans just tend to go for things that are complicated. And things that are complicated does not also equate to higher returns. Sometimes things that are simple uh, use the most returns as well. Yep. Um, I remember almost three years ago, we were having a, this discussion whereby we want to create a service whereby we can manage funds uh, for corporations, for individual uh, investors as well. So we have partnered up with IFAS to make this a reality. So I just want to find out from you, uh, we have onboarded a few clients, we're managing a few millions today. Uh, what's so unique about this managed account compared to other investment funds out there? Like what's really the long-term objective of building this? So when we started doing investment, we were trying to like find our way and trying to ask ourselves if we will ever succeed in this business. And, you know, having done this for a couple of years and seeing how the market has been so volatile, especially over the last three, four years, you know, we have now gained confidence in our framework, uh, our investment checklist, such that, you know, we, we believe that we can generate, uh, you know, good returns uh, for our investors. So, you know, when we, said, when we said that we wanted to launch this fund, you know, the response was very good. Uh, we managed to raise a couple of million dollars and people uh, entrusted us because these are people who have, you know, uh, learned the investment framework from us and they've seen us, you know, talking about different, different ideas. And over the years, they've been looking at the performance and, you know, they are, they, they are confident enough to entrust us with their money. So, first of all, when managing money, you must have that sense of uh, fiduciary duty. I remember I was watching a video on YouTube on uh, this fund manager called Lilu, very, very successful uh, fund manager whom Charlie Munger actually entrusted a lot of his money to him. He talks about fiduciary duty and having a responsibility to take after, uh, take care of uh, you know your investors' money, and you need to have that in you if you're in a man investment management business. And you know I have looked at so many successful CEOs and um, you know capable people, but what really motivates and inspires me on a day-to-day -day basis is like is, is Warren Buffett. You know he leads his life with um, absolute honesty. You can read a lot about him you know, from his shareholder letters, from Berkshire Hathaway, the kind of moves that he made, all right? So I want to set myself on the path of, you know, transparency, honesty, integrity, um, having that fiduciary duty to allocate capital with a disciplined manner to generate returns for, for our shareholders. 
the reason why I put such a high, so-called high level for myself, because that's what I expect of the management whom I'm investing money in. So, you know, every day I'm looking for people who, I'm looking for management that has, you know, that integrity, that discipline, that, that cautious uh, uh, attitude and building a very dynamic working culture to compete in this very tough market. Every day I'm looking for management like that. And over time, I realized that I want to become like that as well for the, the people who invest with us. So this is something that we take very seriously. So with IFAS, we are very happy to be partnering with them because they have been a very great partner by we are leveraging on their platform to, to manage money professionally uh, for our clients. Hmm. So what's unique about the strategy uh, that you are doing as compared to other investment funds out there? Yeah, so first of all, we do not trade in and out very often. We're not like a hedge fund or trader who goes in, in and out of the market. We do very bottom-up uh, approach towards investing. We do a, a lot of fundamental research on the business. We've been following the business for a couple of years. We've been looking at what the management has been doing. And you know, once we are comfortable with the business and we are confident that it can continue to grow for many years ahead, you know, we will then proceed on to do our valuation. We ultimately want to pay what we deem as a reasonable price and not overpay even though it's a good business. And then once we acquire the shares, we are long-term investors. That means we are in the long haul. We're not looking to take profit. We're not looking to sell. All right. So obviously we're going to sell when, when things change, when the fundamentals change. But as long as the companies you know, continue to perform, continue to allocate capital very judiciously, we continue to pursue new areas of growth and the management has been doing a great job, we will continue to invest in them even though the economic situation might be bad, even though there might be a major sell-off in the stock market, but we remain convicted about the business. In fact, if the prices are cheap, we might even buy more. So you know, our approach to, to managing money is very much like how Warren Buffett you know, invests um, Berkshire Hathaway's shareholders' money by looking at quality companies that have a competitive advantage and we are owning them over a three, five, ten year period even. So we believe that that's how permanent wealth can be accumulated. So we never talk about like making profits, but we talk about accumulating permanent wealth through the ownership of high quality businesses. And if you think about it, that's really how all the world richest people, if you look at Elon Musk, or other than Tesla shares being like a hot talk about topic right now, but you look at Jeff Bezos, you look at Mark Zuckerberg, you look at Bill Gates, a lot of their wealth are really concentrated in their core holdings, right? like Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, and even Warren Buffett. So we believe that is the way you know, to, to go about and not trading in and out, timing the market, you know, and, and, and doing stuff like that. We don't, we don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah um, so let's wind it back a little bit. There's one question from our audience. Uh, Kelvin, what do you think of today's current environment, right? Our local banks in Singapore have just cut its deposit rate. And I think, I believe that the worldwide interest rates are at all-time low. Uh, there's a saying today that cash is trash. So how are you thinking about the current environment? And do you think that investors should be fully vested? Because um, honestly, cash is yielding nearly zero returns in today's environment. Yeah, so this is something really interesting. I mean, we have never seen such aggressive monetary policy before in terms of like printing trillions and trillions of dollars to, to stimulate the economy. So, you know, we have never been in this trajectory before. How long can we continue on? I really do not know. I think actually nobody knows uh, the perfect answer because we have never been in a situation like that. But if you think about it, with inflation coming in at 2% or 3%, whatever the government is saying, whether you're in Singapore or in the US or in Hong Kong, they're saying that inflation is about 2-3%. 
And if the 10-year government bond is giving you a rate that is below 2%, all right, the government is indirectly telling you that if you buy bonds, you are technically losing money. It's a, you know, people say bonds are safe, bonds are guaranteed, but to me, bonds are a guaranteed loss because once you're factoring in inflation, you're actually not, you know, um, generating above enough returns to cover the, the rate of inflation. And I mean, yeah, Ray Dalio went on, you know, the news and said that cash is trash. And he said that because, I mean, you can understand why he said that, right? Because with such aggressive money printing and with interest rates at such low, you know, at such a such low point, holding cash is just having your, seeing your wealth evaporate slowly year by year as the economy prints more and more money down the line. So that's the reason why people say, you know, cash is trash. And in regards to investment, you know, the reason why people like to hold a lot of cash because a lot of them are saying, oh, you know what? When the market falls, I'm going to be buying. All right. Because yeah. I, want to have that, <laughs> I want to keep my powder dry. I want to have that firepower and really invest a lot of my money when the market is down. Now, the problem with that is that people like that are timing the market. All right. They are waiting for some kind of crash. All right. So, you know, I have friends who are like that. They've been sitting on cash for a long time and they're waiting for that eventual doomsday scenario before they really invest. Now, the problem is, you know, in March, there was a huge major sell-off and most of them didn't even invest because they're always waiting. They say, that, oh, it's not low enough. It's not low enough. The, the problem is the stock market doesn't tell you when is the lowest point. It doesn't ring a bell and say, oh, I'm at the lowest. I'm going to rebound tomorrow, invest today. No, the market doesn't do that. So if you have that, attitude or that framework of waiting when a crash eventually comes you find yourself very hard to deploy capital so hallmarks you know often say this right the time to invest is when you don't feel like investing that's usually the best time when your stomach tells you no you know because it just fell 10 percent two days ago and it fell another 20 percent last week it's going to go down another 10 15 percent before we invest so you know timing the market is is very difficult and you know my friends I mean, as we are doing this podcast, it's now, you know, January of 2021. We just went through a March 2020 severe stock market sell-off. And my friends are asking, like, what did you buy in, in March? What are you most proud of? I say, I'm not going to say what I'm very proud of of what I bought in March because I bought nothing. I didn't buy a single share in March. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But what I'm proud about myself is I did not sell any shares or I did not sell any shares. That's what I'm most proud of. And you know, a lot of these shares have doubled, you know, in value because the business has done well, or right? even during the pandemic, most of the companies that we invest are asset-like compounders. They are, you know, embracing uh, digital transformation. They're helping companies to, to go online and be on the cloud. And they are software companies with very sticky recurring subscription revenues. So they have done really well in the pandemic. And in fact, the pandemic has just put a lot of demand forward. All right. So thank God I never sell because, you know, when the March came, honestly, I really do feel like selling and sitting on some cash but i told myself no we've got to be disciplined trust the framework and things have eventually uh, worked out very well for us so don't have that mentality of i'm going to keep a lot of cash and, and invest uh, when when there's a when there's blood on the street all right i i recommend a more sustainable framework which is to do your research find companies that you can understand you enjoy reading about and do your valuation the moment the prices are within the reasonable range you can start buying, you can start purchasing. Now you do have to go all in at once overnight, but you can buy every week, you can buy slowly and gradually accumulate the position. So I always say accumulate a position overnight and not accumulate it overnight. All right, so do it over time, not overnight. 
And, and that's something that is very underrated because in today's world, people are looking for instant gratification. They want to say, I'm going to buy today. I want it to be up 50% the next week. All right, like we see now, there's a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people on TikTok, you know, um, uh, Robin Hood traders. Uh, like recently, Elon Musk talked about uh, you know, switching from WhatsApp to Signal and the stock's name is Signal, but it's a totally unrelated company and we see the stock price surge, you know, uh, like nobody's business. So, I mean, the market is so crazy and there's so much speculation going on. Uh, I don't think it's healthy in the long run. But having said that, I'm mainly invested. I don't keep much cash lying around because I, I'm investing for the long haul, but I do have some uh, put options uh, to hedge uh, my portfolio in the event that there's a huge volatility in the markets, then the put options will act as a hedge to, you know, um, to cover. Yeah, so that, that's all I do, to keep it simple. I think, yeah, it's, it's indeed that we are living in a crazy world where we see stocks flying around and stocks crashing. So I think really we got to understand the framework that we have here. I mean, you're talking about, about March, right? Year 2020. I remember that um, 23rd March 2020, S&P 500 index hit an all-time low. Uh, my personal portfolio also hit a loss, almost 30 to 40% loss. I'll be lying to you, right? If I'm not thinking about my portfolio every day. So really being an investor, I think it's kind of tough. You know, Kevin, isn't it funny? Like we torture ourselves emotionally all the time with the ups and downs of the market. But every day, we still love what we do here, right? And I think that for some of our listeners, sometimes when they, you know, of course now we are doing very well. Every day, we are probably seeing our wealth growing by thousands of dollars. It's absolutely a wonderful feeling. But the day comes, let's say if there's a recession, stocks started to come crashing down big time. I think what would be really nice is to hear from you. What really keeps you motivated? You know, I, I mean, you have went through a COVID-19 period where the market have went down a lot. So um, despite feeling so emotional about it, what were some of your biggest reasons why you're still doing what you're doing right now? And what keeps you happy doing your daily research? You know, what, what, what gets you into it? This, this art of investing on a, and learning on a daily basis? Yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, I think is passion. Um, I get very, I still get very fascinated and excited to really study businesses and look at various industries. What kind of return on capital are they all earning? What is the capital requirement to, to run the business? How much assets are on the balance sheet? Till today, it still strikes me as, you know, very, very interesting. And I remember doing one tutorial session for a community where we were looking at most of the car manufacturers. We were looking at GM, we were looking at Ford. A lot of them have not made any return on capital over the last five years. And surprisingly, Tesla has a you know, return on capital of about 14% over the last five years. And most of that return come in just only that only this recent uh, um, six months to nine months period when they started doing well in China and in you know, other, other parts of the world when their gigafactories all came up. But of course, a lot of people are saying that you know, Tesla is more than a car manufacturer. Maybe yes, in terms of autonomous vehicle and and energy storage solutions, but I think that's somewhere down the line. So even to even though I, have, I don't know any shares in these companies, but it's just so fascinating to go through different different industries and look at what's the return on capital like. You know how are the management allocating capital? What is Elon Musk doing different from the CEO of GM or the CEO of Ford or maybe the, the president of Toyota Group? You know how, how what difference uh, are they are they having in terms of mindset, in terms of working culture, in terms of you know, opinions about the future, where are they allocating money, where are they investing their capital for the future. It's still very fascinating to study, you know, these industries. And 
when I find an interest in an industry that I like or when I find you know, an opportunity that, that jumps out at me, that's where I start to you know, accumulate shares in that company. So till this, till, to, till this day, after looking at so many various industries, looking at banks, property development, looking at technology, all right, looking at car manufacturers, you know, it still fascinates me. And every day I'm looking at you know, more and more companies to figure out you know, what's going on, you know, where, where is, you know, um, the successful companies are at. And after you have looked at enough successful companies, you realize that companies that perform very well, their management have what I call the X factor or what I call the A team. You know, do you guys watch the movie Expendables by uh, Sylvester Stallone? So you can see his, his Expendables team is like all the best people, right? So it kind of reminds me of like, or like maybe the Justice League or the Avengers you know, management teams. Good managers are able to rally uh, their, their, their employees, rally their stakeholders and really march towards a common goal and vision. And I like to uncover them. I like to study them. I like to participate in this journey together with them, all right, for the long haul. And that's what keeps me passionate and motivated about the work. So a lot of people get emotionally unstable because when they invest, all they're thinking of is making money, making profit. When can the stock go up 50% and I'm going to sell and, and, and you know, move on to another stock. But for us, whenever we invest in a business, we ask ourselves, if a severe financial crisis were to hit, if economic downturn happens, recession happens, what will happen to the business? We think about all these things before we invest. And we kind of anticipate and expect that some years down the road, there will be some kind of panic. You know, uh, every time it's different. This time around, it's a pandemic. The previous time, it was a financial crisis, uh, the debt crisis in the US. Every time, it's going to be different. But we know that boom and busts in the general economy is going to happen. So we are kind of prepared. Then you realize that the companies that we often invest in are market leaders, very strong balance sheets. They can withstand, you know, not having any revenues coming in for the next 12 to 18 months and you'll still be able to survive. So they are, they are very resilient to economic shocks. They have a very superior business model that they can, you know, in fact, when the times are bad, these management teams can act in a very aggressive way to acquire more customers and expand their market share because they are very disciplined and cautious with borrowing money with debt and having strong and healthy balance sheets allow you to be opportunistic when others are fearful. So I like to pick up teams that, you know, have this kind of foresight, have this kind of cautiousness and the way they conduct themselves, the kind of integrity, you know, the kind of foresight to allocate capital. Reading about them is just a, a, a still captured, captivates me to this very day. So I'm looking to form my own Avengers team and delegate capital to them and have them invest even in these turbulent times. The more turbulent the times are, the more opportunities there exist. So in the eyes of like the Avenger, whenever there's economic turmoil, it's the opportunity to, to, to expand. So I like being a part of them. Like imagine you're a part of Avengers. How cool would that be? <laughs> you know, a, a part of the Justice League or you're a part of the Expendables team, yes. you know? It's a great feeling and you ride through and if you stick with them for years down the line, you're going to do well. You're just going to do well. Look at how Buffett, Munger did it, Peter Lynch, all the famous successful investors. That's how they all did it. They're all part, some part of an Avengers team that they have built on their own. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it still fascinates me to this day. Every day sounds like an adventure for you, right? It's like yeah. un unraveling a uh, puzzle or jigsaw puzzle and trying to fit uh, pieces day by day until you, but the puzzle is never completed, right? It's always a ongoing journey. Yeah, so like what Buffett said, we enjoy the process more than the proceeds, right? Mm. So it's not the money that we're after, but it's more that feel good when you're right about something and you're right about it early on and yep. you're invested early on and you do well, that feeling is like way better than, than the reward, right? That money, than money itself. And that's, that's what keeps us, you know, passionate and motivated on a day-to-day -day basis. Like a intellectual curiosity. Yes. Yeah.
Um, I remember you told me about something quite fascinating. You said that you know everyone wants to become a full-time investor, right? And I think for you, uh, within a short period of time, you are actually able to be a full-time investor. But I also realized that you also mentioned that not everyone should be a full-time investor. So for example, right, ability to scale your uh, expenses up and down. Um, but really, you know, what are some things about being a full-time investor that people do not see? You know, uh, is money coming in every month? You know, how should they manage their expenses? Uh, because I do know that you manage your expenses quite well. You do tracking, you are, you are quite full uh, So really, like, what are some things that being a full-time investor that most people do not see? It's true that most people want to have the idea that I can sit back, shift like, and have money coming in, you know, like that's their idea of being a full-time investor. I mean, technically, yes, when you're successful, that, that actually happens when you pick the right companies. But one thing being an investor is you need to have emotional stability. You need to be very calm. I think intelligence, you, do have, you, need, to, you need to be smart, intellectually curious, but you don't have to be like super genius, high IQ to be a successful investor. A lot of it is more down to emotional stability and also what kind of experiences you had in your life. And I always tell people that one of the greatest uh, skill to have if you are embarking to be a full-time investor is to have the ability to scale your expenses up and down. You know, because we live in a world of consumerism. Uh, we all like to consume. We all like to buy stuff. We all like to buy things that, you know, we don't need to impress people that who don't care, you know. So, you know, you buy your luxury goods or branded goods or you like to buy Starbucks every day. If you can afford well, so be it. But a lot of people, they just spend without thinking twice. They spend without a budget. So they're so used to that kind of lifestyle that of, of spending so much money that, you know, when you want them to scale down, it's going to be very challenging for them. And the reason why I say that is because I was once like that. I was horrible with my finances. Uh, I was spending way more money than I'm making and, and I was in a financial mess. That's why I understand the importance of you know, uh, 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 financial management. But really what turned my life around and what really made me understand is once again, uh, I cannot give enough credit to the research process uh, of, of looking for investment opportunities. Every day I'm out there looking for management that are cautiously optimistic. They are very careful with money. They're allocating money very carefully. They're protecting their company's balance sheets. Then I ask myself, what am I doing with my own balance sheet? What am I doing with myself? And I remember I, I told you guys, we're looking for companies that can survive even without any revenue coming in for the next 12 to 18 months. And often companies that have the ability to survive is because they have a lot of room to maneuver. They have the room to scale down, all right, to hunker down, remove unnecessary expenses and, and, and stay low until the crisis is over, until the recession is over. Then they come back uh, and, and grab the market share. So a lot of companies have no room to maneuver whenever there's an economic recession, the revenues go away, but the costs remain, all right? The, the expenses remain. And what happens is that you see your company's loss-making and when you have a lot of debt, all right, on the balance sheet and when an economic recession happens, revenues go away and costs remain and you cannot service your debt. That's how you go bankrupt, all right? So every day I'm looking for companies that are resilient, economically resilient, uh, companies that are careful with spending, they can hunker down and lay low for the time period. But what about myself? What about my own balance sheet? And I realized that a lot of people, like even in Singapore, they have so much expenses, so much bills that if they were to lose their job, they would not have the ability to scale down their expenses. All right. So it's quite a scary thing, right? To know that you can't scale down expenses, but yet your income might be gone in, in the, in, when times are bad. And I don't want to put myself in that situation. But I think thankfully, because I'm still young, I don't have a family yet, I'm able to have a lot of flexibility with expenses. But 
I think being, if I had known this, I always ask myself, tell myself, if only I had known this like many years ago, but if I never go through that consumerism, that overspending, that mismanagement, I wouldn't appreciate, you know, uh, simple rules like don't spend more than you earn, always have a budget set aside, always have 12 months worth of expenses ready kept aside in liquid cash, such that when the market really falls, you have that money that you can access. It doesn't disrupt your life in a very big way. That is a very underrated uh, a skill or underrated mindset to have, to be emotionally prepared before you invest. And if you have the emotional stability, you're going to sleep well, you're able to stomach volatility, and you'll be the winner at the end of the day. Kevin, you know what? That's absolutely golden advice over there. I think uh, what Kevin has shared is really amazing. And I wish that someone told me when I was much younger as well. We all go through that phase of consumerism, but I think it's the point where you realize enough is enough and it's time to more of like a spending on things that are necessary, right? So I think really when we look at chat so far during this podcast has been really incredible. So in closing, let's say if you could give advice to audience here, who really wants to become very good at investing, maybe in less than 30 or 40 words. Give to investors. Well, so there's two things you can do. First, you can take the long path, read books about investing, uh, read books about businesses, spend hours and hours at the library to borrow the books, read Warren Buffett's letters. That's the long path, the tough path to get good at investing. That's how we all became uh, better at investing, honing that craft, be passionate, and then the, there's a shortcut to it. And the shortcut is to join uh, Kelvin Sito, join the Growth Investing Mastery because uh, most of the heavy lifting is done for you. We will tell you what books to read if you want to. We will provide the information for you so that you have access to it quicker. We do a lot of analysis work for you so you can build your own conviction on the analysis we have done and you can add on your own analysis on top to refine it even further. So joining the investment community that Kelvin Sito has built will shortcut your investment journey. It'll save you tons of money, save you lots of time and in fact, we have a lot of veteran investors in the community. Some of them have been investing for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And they all said the same thing to me. How I wish I knew you guys 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I would have saved so much money. And I, I keep getting uh, very, very happy when I hear comments like that because it really makes our job here very fulfilling that we are transforming people's uh, financial life. We have a vision to put an investor in every household because we believe that if every household have a competent investor, their financial futures are secured. They don't have to worry about money. And once you found yourself in a position that you no longer have to worry about money, life becomes beautiful. Life becomes amazing. And you, you just have a more positive outlook of life. And yeah, I think joining the community will really uh, uh, you know, help you scale a lot of learning curves uh, very quickly. Hey, Gabby, I didn't really expect you to talk about Growth Investing Mastery, but this is sort of a sales pitch, but really something that we really believe in. Uh, only if you're interested, uh, you know, you can reach out to me. All right. So um, any last words from you, Kevin? Uh, what I want to say is be disciplined. Buy only what you understand. Don't, don't join in the hype and buy things that you can't understand. And yeah, invest safe. And you will do well over time. Yeah. With that, uh, once again, um, Kevin So, thank you so much for spending your time, sharing your wisdom, your life experiences. And I do hope that all of you would share this podcast with more people so that they likewise can learn the lessons that Calvin So have went through. With that, we'll come to the end and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Calvesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.